Good evening, everyone. Thank you so much for coming out tonight. This is so much fun to welcome back Ashley Winstead, who has been with us from the very beginning. And if you have not seen Ashley with her first book, you can go to Poison Pen YouTube and you can look up Ashley Winstead and you can watch because we have done a conversation for all of her books so far. So it's really nice to have that archive. And I haven't met Danielle Valentine before, but I'm really glad that she's here. Are you on? It needs to be green. Hi. They turned off my mic because otherwise I'll talk the whole time. <laughs> well, you are going to get to. So it'll be much more fun for you two because they are a well-rehearsed act, right? Um, <laughs> so um, I'm going to just sort of sit here and hope that they will talk to each other. Well, it's okay. Don't panic. If not, I've read your books and I can chime in. But I think We have a little be routine plan. Good. So it's going to be like the Taylor Swift <laughs> eras tour, but there are two of us. Yeah. Um, is there is going the to be a movie? of our tour. So yeah. the, we're, oh, we're fresh. We we're, have energy. Yeah. Um, I thought you guys had been on the road. Yeah. I thought you'd been on the road all week. We, no, this oh, is our first stop. First stop. It's why we look so beautiful right oh, now. Yeah, we're glowing and not. Well, perhaps haggard. my confidence was unfounded then. <laughs> <laughs> oh well. So yeah, we have a rule that either I or Patrick, or whoever is the host for the store, has actually read the books that are under discussion. So if the author looks, here's the thing about about authors on tour. They have already written, most of them, or are writing, another book. And they don't remember this book quite as clearly as somebody who's just read it. So uh, we're here in part in case there's a, like a, you know, deer in the headlights look or, or a complete dry up. Um, we can help. So, but let's see what you guys can do and then we'll see where we are. Oh, okay. So should, should we just start then? Yeah. Okay, cool. <laughs> All right. Um, should we start with... Uh, Let's start with you. Let's start with books? Midnight. Let's okay. start with Midnight. Cool. Tell us about Midnight. All right. Um, so Midnight is the Darkest Hour is my third thriller. As Barbara mentioned, I've had the pleasure of getting to talk with her for each of my thrillers. Um, and it is my... Bonnie and Clyde, um, Southern Gothic thriller. And I, it opens with a skull being pulled out of a swamp, um, in a very small coastal Louisiana town. And this, the thing about this town is it's really, uh, strict Southern Baptist country. Everyone in this small town of Bottom Springs attends the Holy Fire Baptist Church very religiously. Um, and so they're really good, morally upright people. There's not been a homicide or violence in this town in decades or so they think. Um, no one knows who the skull belongs to or how it got there except for the preacher's daughter, Ruth Cornier, our protagonist, who knows exactly who it belongs to and how it got there because she believes she's the one who put it there, right? And so now she's kind of in a race against the sheriff and eventually the whole town to try to throw um, both throw the, the sheriff and the cops off her tracks and also investigate why, if she put the first skull in the swamp why more and more skulls are starting to emerge okay, so that's my rule instead of pitching my book can i just pitch hers again <laughs> because you guys it is so good it is so good it is like the twilight southern gothic mashup of your dreams but also really really hot like i don't even like steamy books and i was like Thank this you. is phenomenal. Thank I you. loved it. It's so good. Just put every weird thing that I wanted to read in this book. So that, yeah. that should probably be my tagline. Yeah, it's like 
Ashley Winstead's weird head. Yeah. <laughs> Book form. Book form. Okay, Love it. I couldn't get book. I couldn't get enough. My book's okay too. It's not bad. Um, my book is called Delicate Condition. It is kind of an updated Rosemary's Baby is what it's been pitched as. I really like to think it's more um, if Alien were a book about pregnancy. Um, it is about a woman named Anna Alcott, an actress who is campaigning for an Oscar at the same time that she is trying to get pregnant through IVF. And um, she thinks it finally worked. Um, she has the the big fat positive, the little plus sign. She and her husband are ecstatic. Um, but then she has this horrible miscarriage and the baby's gone. Only it's the weirdest thing. She can still feel something moving inside of her. And she starts experiencing all of these hor horrible symptoms um, that seem like they could be symptoms of pregnancy or seem like they could be something much, much worse. Um, and just a spoiler alert, it's much worse. It's, <laughs> it's not good. She, yeah. it doesn't, it doesn't end well for her. Um, and you should read delicate condition before you watch it on Hulu, since it's the basis for American horror story this season. That is true. That is, is true. Amazing. Currently streaming on Hulu. Yep. Love it. Okay. Well, you know, I couldn't really be quiet. So here I am. <laughs> um, and since I think that Danielle's book, I mean, she's described it very well, but there are some really serious issues in here about the medical community and whether it really listens to women and really listens to women talking about their bodies. Now, I can remember when I was an undergraduate mm -hmm. at Stanford, which was, you know, in theory, a leading university, and I used to have terrible cramps, terrible menstrual cramps, and so I went to the university you know, medical center and all. And I still remember the doctor saying to me, it's really because you wish you were a boy. What? Seriously, you know, I couldn't believe wow. it. I know, I was 18 years old and in pain. So um, I I think, you know, what you had to say um, is, is really true, that very often doctors don't pay as much attention to how women feel because they don't, especially male doctors, they don't really have any direct experience with it, but I think that's changing, but nonetheless, I do think that, um, and I say that because, you know, I get to go to, to Mayo, you know, um, and they do pay attention at Mayo, but if I were in a rural community somewhere and, you know, um, I had erratic medical care or just people dropping by or whatever it is, and and it's very difficult. The state of medicine in rural communities right now is not great because, you know, the cost of running a practice, the whole bit. I think it would be very difficult to be taken seriously. Yeah, it's interesting. So when I first started working on this book, um, I was seven months pregnant and I was just furious about it. I was very, very annoyed with what my body was doing with all of these things that I kind of wasn't really prepared for, um, that my doctors, and I was in New York, my doctors at NYU hadn't really done a great job of preparing me for. Um, and I think that's a very common spirit experience around people who've been pregnant. Um, so I started writing this book and I was really just I was using it as kind of a cathartic experience. I was really just trying to get out all of my anger at what my body was going through on the page. And I didn't realize I was writing about medical gaslighting until I had some of my agents look at it. And they were like, oh, yeah, I think that you can really bring up the medical gaslighting themes. And it was like, oh, 
Is that what we're calling this? Okay. No, I'm really glad you said that because gaslighting is not part of my basic vocabulary. But yeah. I'm sort of grasping for the word. Well, you just need to be on TikTok more. TikTok loves gaslighting. I am never on TikTok. <laughs> Good for you. Good for your mental health, probably. Um, so, yeah, once I kind of had terminology for it, I felt like I was really able to do the research that I needed to figure out, not just what my character was going through, but kind of the the historical, um, just the historical re relevance of why it happens to women, because it's something that is baked into our medical field. So while, yes, I do think it is getting better, it is something that it's just intrinsic to medicine today. It, for hundreds of years, hundreds of thousands of, no, sorry, hundreds of years. I was right the first time. For hundreds of years, um, women weren't included in medical studies, um, even studies about women's bodies. They were done on men, and then people just assumed that they could, you know, change the dosages to make them smaller for women because women's bodies are smaller. So our, you know, our different, our biological differences weren't really taken into account when they did all of these studies. Pain medications were prescribed much less frequently to women. And, you know, these numbers are all, you know, they're an average. It, if you look at um, what was prescribed to black and brown women, it's even worse. Um, and this persists to this day. It's really, it's really quite horrifying once you start looking into it. Um, so that was really a lot of what influenced kind of the deeper horror of the book. Um, and it's it's something that I still see today. You know, I, you go and you read articles about horrible things that are happening to women who aren't being listened to by their doctors, and it's it, it's one of those things that once you see it, it's kind of everywhere. So. I'm going to make a political statement. I hardly ever do that. We like to think of us as a safe place where you can come in and have yucks and the whole bit. But here's the thing. The abortion wars, these culture wars, have just killed gynecological care and natal care for women because doctors are terrified that they're going to get caught up in this. And, I mean, it is actually increasingly dangerous to be pregnant in America. And, you know, regardless of how you feel about any other political issue, I really urge you to think seriously about the damage that this is doing, um, whether you were ever up. I mean, I, I never happened to me, so I feel fortunate. I got pregnant, you know, easily. I had my two children. That was it. Um, I don't know how awful that kind of a choice would be because I didn't go through it. But what I do know is that there are all kinds of women like me who are now in danger because um, of what's going on, even normal pregnancies. And it's particularly difficult for, um, as you say, um, other, you know, not just yeah. not just plain white women, but other women are, you know, suffering from that too. So, um, you know, that's, that's one thing I really do feel strongly about. And I think only women are gonna be able to determine what happens because it's not as, you'll notice, I mean, there are women who are, who are caught up in that, but I, I keep wondering, why is it that men care? I mean, seriously, why why is it that they really care about, you know, banning it? Well, anyway, that's my uh, that's all we're going to say. <laughs> now we're going to move over to Ashley, and we're going to talk about fun stuff because because we've talked. Sorry to about, bring the mood down, no. guys. <laughs> I'll just go back yeah. to telling jokes. No, 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 no. That wasn't intended to be a put down at all. Um, what we haven't talked about is your character. Yeah. Love of reading, love of books, 
you mentioned lots to do with that as we go through this this dark story. Yeah. But she's a librarian hero. You've yes, got to love it. Right. Is. So talk about why you introduced that whole thread about, you know, books that allowed her to survive her childhood, to escape her childhood, and how she found the library to be a safe space. I love that question. Um, so, and you really kind of just previewed it right there. Um, I have published two books this year. They both have librarian heroes. Uh, one's a romance, and this is my thriller. So I was really just feeling um, inspired to write about libraries and libraries as as kind of heroic places, as li librarians as, as heroic figures. Um, both books touch on book banning in different ways. So that all of that has been kind of front of mind for me um, as a former like library kid who basically lived in libraries. Um, and so when I was kind of thinking about my two characters for Midnight is the Darkest Hour. Um, we have Ruth Cornier, who I mentioned is the preacher's daughter, his only daughter, um, and her best friend, Everett Duncan. And they're like foils. Um, they're both, what they have in common is they're both outcasts in this small town of Bottom Springs. And she is the, the outcast because she's never received any love from her parents. She's forced into this like box of being the ultimate good girl, you know, best behavior. She knows um, she should be seen but not heard, right? And he's the exact opposite where um, because his dad is the town drunk and the town, uh, someone who's very vicious and violent and doesn't take care of him in other ways, he's had to fend for himself, kind of live off nature and he's gotten this terrible reputation as like this feral child. Yep. We Barbara warned us there is a ghost. No, that there's duct problems. This is a haunted book event in honor of October. Yeah, it's perfect. You're for, welcome. For ghost in yeah. the ductwork, right? Um, yeah, which is great. Like perfect timing to emphasize my points. Yeah, so we've got so while both like Ruth and Everett eventually find each other and and carve out this world together. Um, for a long time, Ruth feels very alone, and the library is the one place where she feels um, she can reach into other worlds. She can escape the confines of Bottom Springs, um, which otherwise she feels trapped by. So books are her escape. The classics for a long time. Um, and then when she's 14 years old, she stumbles on an old battered copy of Twilight um, in, in a Haven't box. Haven't we all? <laughs> right. You know, and it's that moment for her when, you know, she loves reading Jane Austen. She loves reading Edith Wharton. Um, all, you know, those books aren't banned. And she kind of makes a little joke that her dad doesn't realize how much rebellion is to be found in, in classics. But Twilight is a banned book in Bottom Springs because it involves a vampire, right? Vampires and, and the occult. Um, and so Ruth, this book drops in Ruth's lap and changes her life. Um, and so books had been like, you know, her, her lifeline to a world bigger than Bottom Springs. But now this book kind of seemed to offer her a map for escape in a different way, right? That she, it, it twilight with, uh, Bella and Edward's love story and the way that Edward, this immortal creature loves Bella so much that he yanks her out of her small life well, you know, isolated life 
where she feels invisible and brings her into this, you know, exciting life and turns her into the monster. She says that she was always meant to be because I reread the saga to make sure I was had my twilight right. Yeah, that's why she reread it. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah. Likely story. Um, well, for pleasure and to get my facts right, for sure. Um, yeah. So this she she sees this other path in Twilight. A boy can save me love can save me. And this does some really good and really bad things to her brain and to her plans around Everett and, and her future. So, um, I guess I, I really wanted to kind of do a little bit of emotional excavation of my own 17 to 23 year old self. Um, like Ruth, I was a book obsessed, shy loner for the most part. Um, and Books were my avenue out, um, and that did both good and bad things for me. Um, so I really wanted to kind of explore that. So that's that's the why of the libraries. Uh, it gave me a chance to write about this reader character who was close to my heart, um, and it gave me a chance, I hope, to kind of stick up for libraries um, and and write about the importance of them for people. Which are no longer, in many cases, a safe space. So yeah. I'm glad that you did that. So here's here's a moment of trivia that relates to what I talked to you all about, about why authors come here. Stephanie actually lived here when she wrote Twilight, and we did her second ever book event for Twilight. And I have to say that it probably was my age. I couldn't really wrap my head around Twilight. So instead of buying two or 3,000 copies, <laughs> I think I only bought 100, which sold out in the first five seconds. Oh, so, wow. Um, it, it was a, a total failure on my part, but I was way past being 17. Um, I know. Um, yeah. Stephanie Meyer, right? I still remember, yeah. And and the store was smaller then, because this, this, you can see a line on the floor. This is actually our third bookstore, because we've been here for 34 years in Scottsdale. But the store ended because this was the back, you saw the back room, right? Mm -hmm. This was the back room where this line is, try not wow. to laugh. Um, and I still remember, you know, people, I mean, I just, none of us could quite envision Twilight. I mean, what or a why phenomenon. People would, yeah. And you, you know, know, part why I chose Twilight to be the book um, that Ruth becomes obsessed with was two reasons. One, in that I think in a lot of ways it's a very old story, right? Death and the Maiden. Yeah. You know, death and this dangerous, seductive figure um, that takes her under her wing. And so I really wanted to play with that. But also because however many years we are past the publication and phenomenon of Twilight, like it is still so controversial. Yeah. So many of my book reviews are like, oh my God, Twilight's in it. So immediately I loved it or Twilight's in it. So immediately I was like, gross, you know, why? if it wasn't for the right. twilight of it all, it provokes so much emotion. Um, and I really wanted to explore that. Like, why is this phenomenon unique to teenage girls and like their desire and their obsession such a hot topic like why is it so incendiary and i think i have a lot of things to say about you that do. In the book. and we could we could talk about here's a good question why is it that we are attracted to bad boys i'll bet every single one of you in this room except you john um <laughs> has been attracted to a bad boy. I actually married a bad boy the first time around, so I, yes. I know from personal experience <laughs> how that goes. But um, Change the conversation yeah. a little. Oh, no, it's about story time. This is not a biographical moment. But, <laughs> um, but no, 
No, I'm really serious. What is it? What is it that I, um, attracts us to bad boys when we know they're bad boys? I did the opposite. I married a golden retriever boy. Mm. He's like you're a cute little beyond puppy. Your years, Danielle. He's very sweet. I oh, am the bad boy. See, okay. There She's got it, it. She's got it. So <laughs> I, can I like say something silly and then something serious? Okay. You have a microphone. <laughs> okay. Like, will you give me permission? So um, I'm clearly not the bad boy since I'm asking. For I that. think you're bad. Um, thank you. Um, I actually pitched Midnight to my agent by saying, Melissa, I want to write a thriller that feels like that terrible guy you date when you first, like, enter the world of dating like that really bad toxic guy who's so bad he's good and you fall so head over heels for them that you are ready to burn the world down to defend it and I was like people other people had that experience right and she was like oh yeah no you're not alone it's okay and she was like yeah go for it um but what I okay so that's the like silly thing but the serious thing is I think that teenage girls aren't often allowed to be the bad boys and so we're attracted to bad boys because it's like we want that transference it's like a vampiric thing you can tell i've thought a lot about this because i'm tying it into the theme of my book but yeah it's this like desire to suck all of the the power and the danger get that proximity transference um from the bad boy who is allowed to break mm. rules and do bad things and i mean like i dated a felon my first boyfriend i will confess to that barbara the look on your face is not <laughs> encouraging um my bad boy actually turned into a green beret and died in vietnam oh, so wow. um and i can tell you from a perspective of almost 83 which i will be shortly um that you you're it's better off to end up with a golden retriever guy yes. um, as you get older. And I've, I'm fortunate that I have one of those. We're going to be married 33 years. We got married on my yes. 50th birthday because I wanted to have something to look forward to every year instead of being in despair. So we don't mention it's my birthday. We mention it's my wedding anniversary, our wedding anniversary. But anyway, uh, golden retriever guys are way better bet for Pretty for sure my first boyfriend was an actual Boy Scout. Like an eagle scout at well, eighteen, no he was very, write, very sweet. No wonder you write dark books. This is. <laughs> I did corrupt them all. I'm starting. I'm sorry. I'm having like a therapy moment here. You're having some realizations. He was Catholic, and then he met me. No, I think. I think. I mean, really, Ashley. I do think it. You know, it's. It's a. I think it's a really interesting statement about why is it that yeah, women. And I wonder if we, if we're brought up with a, if we're, you know, relatively safe, if we're brought up with a false sense of safety or if we think that nothing bad can ever happen to us. I mean, if you think about it, do you remember what women's fashion, girls' fashions were like when Twilight published? Do you remember? 2007. It was um, the almost, yeah. almost naked look. Was if it you went 2007? To no, I think right? it was no, no it I've was heard, before then. Okay, yeah, because I was right. like earlier than that. It was uh, earlier than that. But if you yeah, looked, different. if you looked at what teenage girls were wearing right then, it was a minimum of fabric, will I say, and and there was a lot, there was a lot of discussion about whether if you went out looking like this is the blame the the yeah, girl thing. Game. If you went out looking like mm -hmm. that, you know, then you shouldn't be surprised 
if you know if people hit on you and so forth. So I think Twilight in part was that women wanted to feel that they could girls wanted to feel like they could go out like that. But at the end, you know, their boyfriend would bring them home and just peck them on the cheek yeah. and send them inside. He wouldn't actually like rape them or strip their clothes off them or whatever. And so it was kind of the two sides of being, you know, a young girl, which was, you know, you wanted free body expression and yeah. free whatever it is, but you also wanted, you know, a safe relationship, a romantic relationship. Yeah. You didn't want to think that it would inspire lust and whatever. Well, the through line is control, right? Control over how you are, you know, how you present your body and then yeah. how people are reacting to it. I feel like um, we had this conversation on a different panel. It's just the idea of control over women, whether yeah. it's control over how they act, control over their bodies, control over their reproduction. It's yeah. just there's so much control exerted on women in our society. And I, I forget what author said this at an event and it stayed with me ever since. But like when you boil down, she said, when you boil down a lot of the fantasy and thrillers that women write, um, they're writing about the like the experience of, well, I guess this has more to do with fantasy, but the fantasy of like being able to walk alone at night and be the, be the thing to be feared, yeah, be powerful, be the power. Right. Yeah. And so much of women's fantasy boils down to that. Um, and that I'm just like, Oh great. Yeah. But you could summarize like all, no, my I books. think that that's, I think that's really fair. There's actually a, a scene in my book in delicate condition where she is, angry with a man and she has this thought of like, I wish I could like devour him and mm -hmm. it encourages something else to happen that I won't say because spoilers, but like it was very much a cathartic, like what would I want to do in this situation? If I had the power to actually hurt somebody the way that a man can hurt a woman when he's upset, it like, yeah, it was, I don't know, an interesting moment to write. Yeah. And what does it say about us that in, in trying to envision that power, we go to like monstrous, you know, it's like, I want to devour or well, we were the original monsters. Yeah. Like even before huh. when I was, so this Ooh, book has been through, <laughs> this book has been through so many drafts, like so many more drafts than any of my other books. I, I was writing it for three years. And in one of the very, very early first drafts, there was a, um, there, there was a storyline with Lilith. Anybody familiar with Lilith? Mm -hmm. Lilith is a figure, um, usually, um, she's, she's a figure in many different mythologies, but she's usually um, talked about within Jewish folklore and mythology, but she was Adam's first wife before Eve, um, and she didn't want, the, the story goes, she didn't want to lie under Adam. She wanted to be equal, and so they cast her out of Eden, and she made it with an angel i believe and had all of these demon babies and so it was just this idea of like well she didn't want to be subservient to adam and therefore she became a monster and she now is this this incredibly interesting figure throughout you know lots of different like lots of different folklore and mythologies but also modern story tradition where modern women are kind of like trying to take her back as this feminist icon, um, this woman who didn't want to to lie beneath a man, to be considered unequal to a man, this woman who chose herself over him. Um, but yeah, there, you know, there are all sorts of stories about her that she was actually the serpent who gave Eve the apple, which is also like, if you think about the, 
like what that means from a story standpoint, what that means thematically. It's like, oh, the other woman corrupting the woman with knowledge. I love it so much. I really tried to make it work in my book and it just really didn't. Um, but I, I just read so much about Lilith and I mean, can we yeah. get a Lilith book in the future? Maybe? I don't know. I'm not sure if I'm the right person to write yeah. the Lilith book, because as I said, like she's such a part of Jewish yeah. mythology and folklore. And I am, you know, I'm not Jewish, but um, I do love her. I do. I do. I'm, and I, I do want her. I want to write so a, a Lilith book. Mythology, let me let me just throw this in, because um, if you go all the way back to what, the Mabinogian, which is the whole Welsh body of legend that the Lord of the Rings basically mirrors, um, Tolkien wrote it. And if you look at some of the very, very early, uh, Mary Renault writes really mm. well about this kind of thing. They were matriarchal societies. And basically that was because they thought since women had babies, this is way before anybody really had any medical knowledge. The idea was that women had all the power because women could inseminate themselves or but they didn't even know that was yeah, a they word. weren't sure how, that, how that women had, they thought we, women had yeah. babies and therefore that women it was queens that ruled and women that ruled and they would sacrifice very often some young guy would be the sun god for the year or the corn god or whatever it was and they they'd kill him you know because I'm, i really think we should go back to this is this not is this up for discussion not a bad plan and then and then Seems a lot of me. scholars have looked at this and decided that that patriarchy arose i love this in desert and and climates where the light was really bright and people could actually figure out hmm. how women got pregnant seriously it was you know I mean, if you're in like so fascinating, it really is. Um, and but it's a serious body of knowledge. And when it switched from matriarchy to patriarchy, men then wanted to be sure that the child a woman had was actually his. And that's where all this comes from, the control thing. And well, that's all where the, the idea of virginity is being sacred. That's right. Exactly. So. Um, and, you know, it's, it's just biology. Um, but you I don't think we can ever imagine a time when, you know, people didn't know how biology worked or even that there was such a thing as biology. But if you can put yourself in that mindset, you can see that women really were the powerful sex for a long time. Well, and you see it persist through till now with just I, I mean, like I like Ashley, I grew up in a very religious, you know, household, religious background. And, you know, you have the whole. Like, I, like I, I don't think that this has any actual linguistic basis, but you have the whole, you know, the stories that you're told in religious places where it's like, oh, you know, woman comes from Adam's rib. A woman comes from, you know, the womb of man. And if you just think about how effed up that is, <laughs> this idea, it's like, well, you know, like men can't give birth, but like Adam gave birth to women. So it's basically like men gave birth to all women. And it's just this like weird twisted thing where they're trying to, like take back some of the power that um you know that women have to to be able to to give birth and have children i i find it fascinating it really is and think about <clears throat> excuse me think about athena also known as minerva mm -hmm. uh the goddess of wisdom um according to the greek mythology she sprang full grown from the head of her father zeus sort of adam's rib you know that she was already kind of in armor too yeah, I think she was right. Well, we've digressed. Um, yeah. Let's let's go back to. Um, we can't talk about the ending of books here, or you'd all go away very cross. Um, but I want to say that when you finished Ashley's book, read the afterward, and and 
think about why she wrote it the way she did. It's really fascinating. And then send me the angry messages. <laughs> but read it first. <laughs> no, I don't I don't think it should be angry. I think I think you did a I really interesting thing, which we'll talk about at dinner. But mm -hmm. um okay, good. but really I think <clears throat> excuse me, I keep losing my voice. <clears throat> Another artifact of being eighty two. Um I I really think um you made a, you made a fabulous choice, and I think all of you who read the book should think about why she made it. Thank you. I will say that that was not my original ending. It wasn't really no. So I'm someone who really prides herself on always knowing the endings to my book before I start writing them. It's like tell them thing. about the outlines. Um. Oh yeah. Um. To the horror of my editor, I write um, for every single book, no matter what genre. I write obscenely long, like 42 to 50 page outlines um, where I basically start d drafting the dialogue scene by scene. And then I'll just, you know, finally get it over with, shove it at my editor and say, like, what do you think? You'll have this back to me in a week with comments. Right. Um, and she's always just like, oh, my God. <laughs> um, but, yeah, I'm a super type A planner. So that's my process. I have to feel like I've put all the pieces together in the most meticulous way possible so that I then have the freedom to let my drafting brain be creative when yeah. I'm writing. So yeah, I wrote this book with what I am still very proud of um, and like to think of as um, the most bonkers ending ever. Um, and I promise I won't spoil anything, um, but I sent it to my agent first and she read it and she was like, nope absolutely not like you are not allowed to do this um and she her reasoning was i was breaking the contract that i established with my reader throughout the book by the ending that i chose because it would have changed the genre of the book in the last page and um i tried to argue with her by saying that like so this other, is the first ending this is this not is the, the ending. first ending Yes. Just like want to like get down in the like yes. dirt about like explain to me exactly what this, this ending is. This was the first ending that I had this brilliant idea, I thought, of how this book was going to end. And it was a twist that no reader was ever going to see coming. And apparently that was the problem with it um, because it has to actually make sense according to the logic of um, of the book. And I know that. I just think sometimes as thriller writers, we get twist pressure. Like we suffer from twist mania. Like this, this idea that like we have to outsmart our readers. We have to put something on the page that they're just never going to see coming. And that's why they're going to like the experience but of I reading the book. I think readers kind of like when they can guess the twist a little bit. I like if, if they yet. can guess the twist a little bit, we'll like if they all. have a feeling, yeah. like not if it's super obvious, but if you're reading and you're like, Oh my God, I think she's going to do this. And okay, you're like, I think I figured it out. Like I don't know. What do you think? Is that, that, like that or is no? it satisfying? Okay. Right. You do. Okay. I, kind of, I like it when I'm reading. I like to be able to follow the clues and feel like I'm smart. Um, yeah, no, if it's too obvious, if it's too okay. obvious, it pisses me off. Right. I like to know like two pages before it happens to be like, Ooh, I bet she's going to do this. And then she does. And I'm like, yeah. Okay. 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 Well, I was feeling a lot of twist pressure, apparently like un undeserved. And so I came up with this bonkers ending. Um, 
And rightfully, my agent sl metaphorically slapped me across the face via email and was like, no, not in this house. Um, and it was for the best because she was like, you have to earn your ending. Like, this has to make sense for your characters. And I'm really glad that she pushed me because now I can't imagine it any other way it's because i'm gonna make using her that ending for another story though if you you know start i mean you could you could reuse it i would have <laughs> with to with the right story i would have to like the whole reason that ending worked it was is because it changed the genre at the end oh, okay. and so if i was going to be an honest author <laughs> which apparently you have to be um i would you know you'd know from the outset it was you know uh -huh. i don't know that she, yeah, yeah I, know, right? I think i don't know like okay. my book changes genres halfway through I feel like and that was always... like a trick that we were we we knew from page one that we wanted to do this tr this trick, um, and so yeah, I, like I mean, it took twelve drafts to get it right, guys. Like it was very very hard, but yeah, we knew we wanted to do. I feel like yours is cheating. Thing that was, I think, a, a large part of the work that my agent and I did yeah. was to make sure that it feels surprising mm -hmm. and that tw the twists feel earned, but that it doesn't feel like yeah. cheating because I I also hate that when you're reading a book and you're like. Like anybody, like you can just throw on a weird ending and it's like, yeah. I don't think that that's what your book like, did. I think it was probably brilliant. And oh. I'm going to make you tell me the entire, like first yeah. I will tell you. And if anyone DMs me, I will also tell you privately <laughs> after you've read the book, um, what it was originally going to be. But yeah, like we, we really worked on it. And a lot of people have mentioned in the reviews, like, yeah, the book like basically changes from thriller to, to horror uh -huh. halfway through. Your book. Yep. Not mm -hmm. her book. My book. See, yeah, and I, yeah, you did great work because I never once felt like I was like, oh, now I'm reading a different book. I, well, I just we felt give like you it a lot of clues into that, like, what it was supposed stuff to be is happening. Yeah, and yeah, okay. mine was a cheat. I will admit that now. I don't believe many that. many months after the wound has of being rejected has. But we also closed. like we changed the genre. I mean, the the, the genre changes about halfway through, so it's yeah. not final page. Yeah. We give the reader a lot of time to. I keep saying we as though somebody else wrote the book with me. I give the reader <laughs> a lot of time to get yeah. used to the fact that like something deeper is going on here. Yeah. Um, but. I really wanted the book to start and feel kind of like a traditional thriller. So the you you have a lot of the the kind of trappings of a traditional thriller with yeah. like the husband who may or may not be you know exactly what it, he seems the perfect seeming marriage the perfect seeming life like she's very rich and successful she's an actress and then some stuff is going on and you're like wait a second this is different than the other stuff I've read or at least mm -hmm. that's the plan I hope mm -hmm. <laughs> that it works out but yeah I knew from the beginning I wanted to write a book that was a thriller but felt like a fairy tale mm. um that had always been a dream of mine to like and i knew that would be that would come down to the characters the the there would have to be a kind of like fairy tale nature to the writing and the perspective and i thought oh this will really work for ruth because she's educated herself by reading books so her inner monologue has been shaped by classics and fairy tales and other books she's consumed. Your setting works really well for that too. And no, the I'm setting. glad you brought that yeah. up because I was going to suggest we talk about that before we open it up to other questions yeah. is um, how important the landscape of the book is which includes culture as well as geography yeah. to the story. So you've picked you know if did y'all ever read fairy tales like the green book of fairy tales or the no probably way before your time. Um, many of them are German, and many of the characters come out of the dark woods, mm -hmm. right? So you had to pick a place that sort of mirrored that, you know, the, 
the troll under the bridge or the, you know, the evil in the woods thing. So and fairy tales are often very vicious in their original <clears throat> format as well, yeah. um, which I love. Um, being the creep that I am. So, yeah. yeah. Disney version is not really how they all <laughs> Disney version is kind of a lie. Exactly. Um, so, yeah, I have wanted to write because I have family in Louisiana and I live in Houston. And so it's a five hour drive to um, New Orleans where I've had family living. And I drive, I would make the drive back and forth and I would drive through a lot of the towns that I include and in reference in Midnight. Um, Bottom Springs is fictional, so I could do whatever I wanted with it without upsetting anyone um, or getting angry emails. But everything else is is drawn from real life. And I, to me, as someone who spent her teenage years in Southern Florida in a very swampy um, part of Florida, um, kind of taking kayak and canoe rides through the swamp, um, there is no more naturally frightening place on earth, in my opinion, than a swamp. Like it feels prehistoric. You have this sense as you're, you know, kind of winding through the water that looking down at the dark, opaque, you know, water that you're, that you understand there are alligators and snakes in, you know, you just, you understand like, I probably shouldn't be here. You know, there's a sense of being, it's an otherworldly sense. So for the book that I knew I wanted to feel to my readers like a fairy tale, I thought there could be nothing better than um, setting it in this swampy, foresty place where um, not only are there alligators and snakes, but potentially um, something even worse, the low man, which I got to create a whole mythology for this book, which was so fun. Um, and I just, what I really wanted to do, and I think this kind of plays into the title a bit, Midnight is the Darkest Hour, is um, the swamp for the, the people of Bottom Springs is this site of danger. Most of the time, people kind of leave it alone. There are trappers who venture in. Um, but for the most part, people know you go in there, you're risking things. Everett, from his because he his father completely gave up and abandoned the idea of raising him had to go into the swamp to kind of like forage and find food so to him it's it, he has a completely different relationship with it and that's a relationship that once he becomes friends with Ruth he shares with her he cultivates for her so the swamp and all the dangerous dark places stop being places of uh, fear and become a site of like reverence for the two of them. Like all the holy feelings that Ruth knows she's supposed to feel in church and for God, she places into nature and nature becomes her kind of religion and her, her place of transcendence and connection. Um, and so I liked the idea of taking something so spooky and Gothic with the Southern dark swampy setting and having it be at once spooky and gothic but also like the place of beauty and safety and redemption for these outcast characters it's so interesting to me that you say that like the swamp is like the scariest possible place you can imagine because that's exactly how i felt about the hamptons <laughs> which is where my book is set um i'm from the midwest and we don't have anything like the hamptons in omaha nebraska where i'm from you know it's it's just not that kind of 
natural beauty meets man-made perfection that's just been maintained and beautified with money. Um, we don't have that in the same way. Um, and I married this East Coast golden retriever and he is not wealthy in the same way, but his grandparents like bought a house there in like the seventies when I guess they were just giving them away or something and they never sold. And so it was this amazing thing where we would go and stay at his grandmother's you know, house. And it's this tiny little beachy shack surrounded by mansions. And I'm just like, what? Like what is happening? Um, but I, would, I, I got to go to the Hamptons and I remember like telling my mom and my parents were all like, what? Like it just sounded so like, like incredible and like fancy. Um, but I would walk around these places and they're it, just the beauty. It, like it's, it's so overwhelming and it's so manufactured, but it's manufactured to the level where you can't really tell where the manufacturing starts and the actual natural beauty takes over because that is what wealth can do. And it just occurred to me as I was walking, well, two things occurred to me as I was walking through these, this, these places. The first is that, um, this kind of beauty hides a lot of rot. You can hide a lot of evil beneath this kind of a veneer because it looks so pretty. It looks so unassuming. And um, and then the second is, you know, this is a place that's made for summer. This is a this is a summer theme park for the obscenely wealthy. And what happens to it when summer's over? What happens to it the rest of the year? And I really and so that just kind of like got into my head the idea of the Hamptons in the winter, this beautiful beach town that's just iced over because um, it gets cold, you know, on the East Coast. It's not it's not like some of these other beachy summery places that kind of stay lovely year round. It's it gets miserable. Um, so that's where I set it. And as I kind of continued to explore like this setting and and what it meant and what it represented for somebody like Anna, who's kind of trying to become this this wealthy, famous person, it just also started to, in my mind, become like a metaphor for pregnancy. This thing that we're we're taught is so beautiful and oh, you're in a delicate condition or a family way that's like these cutesy patronizing terms we use for people who are pregnant. Um, you're supposed to be glowing and the most beautiful you've ever been, but underneath something much dark like something much more troubling is happening and it's you know it's it's a lot harder to deal with and we're kind of forced to hide it so anyway it just it, it became kind of like a mirror for for the stories the place that it was set in and it was just it was very fun to explore that um and also i got to go to the hamptons once and stay in a very cheap motel in the winter and be like okay i can write about I'm just this. thinking i love it when authors like name check their title as they're describing them. i'm like oh delicate condition yes. <laughs> that's so why good. it's called this yes so questions from any of you who would like to raise their hand and i know it's intimidating because we've been all over the place right but you could surely tell by now you could ask anything and if you don't ask us a question, we're just going to stare at you and it's going to be really awkward for you <laughs> and it's going to be really awkward for us. And it's not required. It's not required. Patrick, are there any questions from the audience? Hang on just a sec. Let me let me lure Patrick out from his lair. Uh, any audience questions? Um, no, but I would love to. Yeah. Um, Audible, contact me. <laughs> 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 
That's right, really we can nice. DM audio, audio. Um, sorry, audio books when this is over, and suggest that Ashley I, read her books. You know, I will confess that one person told me that my voice was so soothing they would like me to read them a bedtime story. <laughs> so now I'm just worried that I bore people when I talk. Um, okay. So I, I've always thought you had a lovely voice, so that's not, I'm not surprised at all. <laughs> so that's, that's our penetrating question from the online well, audience. We got, we got one about reading habits. I'm sorry. I cut you off. So voraciously. You go to work yes. and then you, I read a lot while I'm at work. Um, this, so my husband is like, so let me get this straight. You spend all day, seven days a week writing. Then as soon as you're done, your favorite thing to do is read other people's books. And then you go travel to talk about books. Um, and he was like, so it's just 24 seven books all the time. And I'm like, I am living my dream. Like childhood, Ashley, if she could see me now would be like, all right, we figured it out. Like, it's fine. We don't have to worry. There are a lot of like goth depressive stages we could avoid. Um, but no, yeah. I remember talking to somebody else who's like a lit major in school. Um, and she was like, yeah, you know, it turns out that there aren't a lot of jobs where you're just required to like read and analyze literature all day. And I'm like, there's one, yeah. I know one. And yeah, cause I, I tend to read like I, I get through usually around two books a week um on average um sometimes I'm rereading stuff but I'm, I always have like two or three books in progress um and then I skip around so yeah one of my biggest stresses which I'm sure everyone here can relate to is just not being able to read as much as I want that is like I feel very privileged saying that, but that is one of the top stresses in my life is like yep, the to be red pile is sort oh, of like yeah. the swamp, right? You're pretty sure that it's the swamp and it's going to come and get you. And just wanting hiding in there for sure. And just wanting to stay on top of like all of the new stuff that's coming out and the stuff that's yeah. like culturally important and that's changing, you know, like that's yeah. part of our job Being is we need to really know yeah. what's working and what's not working. Uh, here's, and... a, here's a depressing figure this week. There were 1,597 new hardcover books published. 1,597. Holy our cow. job, our job here, my job, Patrick's job, John, Amy, and all, is to reduce that to some manageable number to talk to you about. And it's it's really discouraging. Um, the volume has gone up to the point where I used to be able to read everything new that came out within, a, and now, you know, if I can do 200 books a month, it's a miracle, which is roughly what that's, I do. Yeah. That's, now, wow. I am a super speed reader. I can actually, you read two books a week, I can read yeah, four can books really a day. Like, so, you know, that's the way it is. Right. But it's just, that's it's, cute. it's just, a, it's a, no, it's, it's just, you know what, um, you're born with it. It's like having perfect pitch or something. It isn't anything that you can actually learn. My mother was like that, and it is, um, I don't even know exactly how it works, but basically you just sort of look at a page and you take it all in. Um, and you, I don't think you can learn it. But it was an absolute curse for years when I couldn't find enough things to read. And now, <laughs> now it's the other way around. So it's not, um, but um, yeah, it's just Reading one of those with things. with the main character like you, The Puzzle Master by Daniel. Yeah, by True Sony. Yeah. yeah, it was an interesting book. Yeah. I, I really enjoyed it. Of course she's but, <laughs> like, yes. 
<laughs> I right. do recognize myself. No, but I'm just saying I'm just saying that, you know, you really kind of need a guide anymore. Yeah. I mean, TikTok might be fun and all the rest of it, but um, there are financial incentives for people and to, you know the whole influence well, and tiktok world. is recommending the same four books over and over and over well again. i wouldn't know since i don't have time to go there i'm too busy reading um and also i just can't quite bring myself to make funny motions <laughs> i'm just i'm too old it's, for it's really humiliating well but anyway my point is that that part of our job as booksellers is to kind of winnow down what we think you don't have to take our word for it. You might not agree with us. Your taste may be completely different, but that's really what we do is, you know, try to try to come up with some, you know, reasonable number of things to recommend to you. But we have a really diverse staff and we all read the same thing, you know. So if you like dark and hard boiled and all, Patrick is your guy. If you want romance, John's right up there at the counter, you know, um, and that's fun, you know. And the more staff we have, the more diverse our reading is and the more interesting it can kind of be. So on that note, I want to thank you all for coming this evening. Let's give our authors a big round of applause. Thank you, thank you so much for coming. Thanks. It's really so been lovely to have them here. And um, you probably all like to get your book signed, right? Mm -hmm. So why don't I'm trying to think. Oh, sure. This is this is everybody's favorite question, and it's such a boring answer. I like I, I wish I could make it more exciting, but really, it's just I have a phenomenal film agent, and um, she like had lunch with. I, I, I also don't want to say too much because I, I don't know how much of this process I'm like supposed to talk about. But she like had a contact with his company and, you know, sent him the book and they were they were into it and they wanted to, to make it into the next season. So I just got really lucky that I have really phenomenal people on my team to work with and that um, they were looking for a project to um, to turn into a season at the time that I had something out. So it was just, it was really a lot of luck. It was a lot of um, just like the right place, right time. And I, I don't know, I, I feel like it was a really good, really good match. <laughs> Not yet. Did you, Still. did you get casting updates though? Like on the download where you hearing did. and where you I like, did. I so I did not get Kim K until it was released to the public, which was wild. Like she posted and that's when I found out she was cast. Um, and I lost my mind, like called my agent. I was like, excuse me, what's going on? She's like, I am looking into it right now. Um, and so that was incredible and really fun. Um, but yeah, I got some other casting updates kind of before they came out just a little little like hey fyi um and i yeah, i've gotten to see a couple of shots of what's to come there's one scene in particular that i cannot wait i really really hope they they do it and they showed me a photo so i think maybe they will but no no it's completely i mean american horror story it's every season standalone and so you can start if you've never watched it before and start right now and yeah Yes, I am. <laughs> yes, I am. Like, it's a very cool thing to have something live in your head for so long and then to see it played out, especially by, like, the brilliant actors that they have doing it. It's really incredible. Yeah, it's been it's been great. When do we expect to be able to watch it? It's it's out now. Oh, it's out now. Yeah, the, so they had to um, split it into two 
like like parts and I, I think it's because of the writer strike um or i mean the the actor strike now um so the first part all of it's out now on hulu but i think and then the second one i'm sure will come out when that wraps up so hopefully soon have you watch it you should watch has it. anybody watched it here so far yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> read the book first guys right. yeah. the book is always a good idea good. always read the book first, right first. yeah okay well thank you all very much hello we hope you're enjoying our programs and podcasts with authors we'd like to expand them and your help would be appreciated please make a donation at poisonedpenfoundation.org 100% of the proceeds will go to help connect authors with readers in this difficult time Thank you.